bit of an unusual focus this morning, the dead body of Christ. This is a razor-thin slice of the Bible's history of God and man. Even in the 33 years of Jesus' life here on earth, it's still just a very, very brief moment of that time. This morning we will not examine the events of Christ's crucifixion and death that occurred only moments before these three hours. We studied that last week. Nor will we look ahead to the coming resurrection of Christ. Glorious as that is, we will do that next week, Lord willing, when Phil brings us that passage from Mark chapter 16. And that is not because Mark 15, 42 through 47 is more important than those events. It isn't at all. But often, these verses become an add-on conclusion to a sermon on the crucifixion of Jesus, or they serve as an introduction to a message about the resurrection of Christ. However, in this matter of only a few hours from the death of Jesus on the cross at 3 p.m. in the afternoon until that large round stone rolled across the mouth of the tomb sealing it in utter darkness just before 6 p.m. when the Sabbath would begin. In that time men and women stepped forward in courage for Christ and the amazing providence of God is on display. All of this, all of this occurs while the body of Christ lays cold and lifeless without a single word from his lips. I haven't had a lot of experience with this, and some of you have had more so. But when I was uh, 17, I was working on a construction crew with some other young men uh, pouring concrete in a little pit area of a basement on the outside between the dirt wall and the concrete wall. And uh, it was really a fun summer in a lot of ways because I had just graduated from high school and was going to a, a small college here in Kansas the next year. And there were about four or five other young men on our crew that were going to that same college. And one of them happened to be the guy who would be the student body president at that college the next year. He was going to be a senior. And just his name was Mike Carver. Just, I can see him clearly in my face. Always a smile. Everyone loved this guy. And we were working on this basement. And one of the things you have to do after it's poured is between the concrete wall and the dirt where it's dug out is a gap where you had your forms. And uh, a front end loader would come and dump dirt in there. And then you would tamp it with this tamper that you'd fire off. And it'd to tamp that dirt down tight and hard. And uh, so another friend and I that I was going to high school with was on the other side of the basement over here. And then Mike and another fellow were over on this side. And uh, we're working away and all of a sudden we hear the one guy just screaming and yelling. So Lonnie and I, we, we drop our tools and we run around and, and we look. And, and my one friend, Danny, is trying to scrape dirt away from this pile of dirt. And sitting on the top of the dirt is a yellow hard hat. And all of a sudden we realize the mic's underneath that pile. And, uh, you know, just with our hands trying not to hurt him or whatever we could do, we just desperately scraped the dirt away. And finally got his head above 
the dirt and we tried mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and, and I won't share the details. It just was useless, hopeless. And uh, we scrambled and we dug and in the meantime somebody had called the ambulance and we finally get him up and, and I remember lifting his body up and uh, not realizing it at the time but he was dead. When that dirt had caved on him it slammed him against the wall of the concrete and snapped his neck. Instantly he was dead. And uh, we were just three high school kids handling this body of this really neat young man. And I'll never, I'll never forget that, obviously. And what it was like to hold a body that no longer had life. And not even knowing at that moment. And we were just dazed. And uh, we closed the site down that afternoon. And there were safety investigations and all those kind of things. But... Um, I'm sure some of you in the medical profession have had those kind of experiences. I'm sure David has, some of the rest of you. This is what Jesus' body is like at this moment. It's, there's nothing inside of it that's alive. There's not a stirring, a potential. Yeah, we know what happens in three days. But that isn't going on in the minds of these people. That body is dead and lifeless. And from the best that they can imagine it's over. Tomorrow is Memorial Day and we celebrate that in this country. It's specifically a time to remember those men and women who lost their lives while serving in the United States Armed Forces. We, we remember others, we certainly do, but that is why it was instigated to begin with. A good amount of the freedom and peace we enjoy has been preserved through the sacrificial giving of the lives of these men and women. By the Lord's providence, this Sunday of Memorial Day weekend, 2022, we are reading, meditating on, and studying the death of one who gave his life to secure freedom and peace. This is a freedom from the clutches of death and the power of sin forever. It is an eternal peace that he gains for us with the Holy Creator God for everyone who will turn away from the kingdom of this world and trust in Him. Last week, we studied the final hours of Jesus' life. That time on the cross. How long was that block of time? But remember. From nine to three. Six hours. Six hours, that's all it took for the greatest accomplishment the universe has ever known. Six hours. How do we know that? How do we know it was from that time? Because if we look at the scripture and keep in mind, we want to understand what this word is about and we want to know this author. And as God is the author who speaks through Mark, we notice that Mark fifteen twenty five. what does Mark say? Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. We move ahead to Mark 15, 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Mark 15, 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What happened in that span of 360 minutes, six hours. 
Let's read again to catch us up this morning. Mark 15, beginning with verse 24. Mark 15, 24, please follow along. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, then breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he cried out like this and breathed his last. He said, Truly this man was a son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the less and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. That is, that is a tremendous passage there. And I would encourage you, go, go online and, and listen to messages about this. Study this. This is a, uh, it's the most accomplishment in the history of the world has ever known. And it's packed into six hours. Listen to other messages. Go back and you can listen to some of the ones we've preached on that. Keep this fresh on your mind. Keep this fresh on your mind what Christ has done. That's our message. That's what we bring to this world. I don't, I know in, in this room per capita we have some of the most highly trained and skilled men and women that any church has ever had. That won't, that won't do you one ill of beings difference when you face Christ at the cross. If you do not know the gospel and who Christ is and what he has done and have repented and trusted in him, it doesn't matter. And you all know that. But it also doesn't matter what we give to everyone else if we don't pass this along. This is what we live for. As you grow old and you look back, you won't say, I wish I wouldn't have spent so much time in the gospel and sharing it. I guarantee you that you will say, I wish I would have taken advantage of that. I wasted that year. I wasted those years. And I had the key to eternity to offer to men and women. I had the key to eternity that will glorify God every time I share it. 
Verses 42 and 47 this morning. The removal of Christ from the cross and his burial in the tomb will require only half the amount of time that the killing of Christ demanded. Three hours. Do you realize this is about the same amount of time from when some of you got out of bed this morning until right now? Three hours. In these few six verses, we will see first the rush of urgency with the body of Christ. We will see the request for the removal of the body of Christ. We will see the relinquishing possession of the body of Christ. We will see the respectful care for the body of Christ. And we will see those women again. The women remembering the location of the body of Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, please show us why you included and specified or specifically described this three-hour period of time when, your soul, when the soul of your son was no longer in the physical body you had prepared for him. How did you work in the lives of the men and women we read about here who pulled the limp corpse of Christ your son down off that cross? They carried it. They wrapped it. They prepared it for burial. They smelled it. They touched it. They saw it. They brought it and then they left it. Why does this matter to us? Please show us, Father. Show us who you are in this tiny sliver of the eternal existence of Christ, the Son of God. Change us. Please, Lord, convict us, comfort us, unsettle us, but show us you, Lord God, that we would love you, that we would honor you, and we would serve you more than before when we finish the study of your word. Amen. Well, one reason that's obvious that we know that the handling and burial of Jesus' lifeless body is critical is that it is described in all four of the Gospels. There are very few events that are described in all four Gospels. As we get to these climactic ones at the end, certainly they are poured out and they are described in all of them. But this one is significant. It is also significant for another piece of evidence. When Paul gave a compressed version of the Gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, do you remember what he said? In verse 15, 3, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 said, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Those are the three points that Paul illuminates, first of all, as being important. He said, These were delivered to me, and I am relaying them to you. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and that He rose again according to the third day according to the Scriptures. Mark 15, verse 42 begins, Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So we have the urgency, the rush of urgency with the body of Christ. You see, Mark keeps us keenly aware that the clock of God is ticking. While God is not limited by time or space, He does move and demonstrate who He is often through very specific times and in certain places and events. This pointed description here in this verse of the time and event tell us there is much that must take place in just a few brief hours. Look at this moment that's described. The moment is given in detail. First of all, it is evening. Essentially that means, actually prior to 6 p.m. 
Secondly, it is a preparation day. Preparation for what? Well, then, then he says, it is a day before the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is fasting approach, fast approaching. At 6 p.m. it will be there. So they are doing all they can all over the city of Jerusalem. Meals are being prepared. Things are being done in preparation for Sabbath. Because at 6, you must stop. And as Mark has already written, we also know that it is also the night of the annual Passover. So there's a lot happening in the city. Several years ago, uh, a few of us were able to go to Jerusalem and visit a good brother, Anthony Simon. And we were there during uh, the weekend, during the Sabbath. And I remember uh, just, uh, it was stark. I mean, everything's moving along. And then when 6 p.m. hits, the streets are empty. And it's all day Saturday, the streets are empty until 6 p.m. And then the college kids and, and older couples and everybody start to fill the streets of Jerusalem again. But during that period of the Sabbath, everything almost comes to a grinding halt, a stop. This is what the preparation was for. They had to be done before 6 p.m. Now there are three hours left between Jesus' death at the ninth hour, 3 p.m., and sundown that begins the Sabbath at 6. Something must be done with the three bodies on the crosses, including Jesus's. Now, in addition to the pressure of the fast approaching Sabbath, Jewish law in Deuteronomy chapter 21 reads, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree. But you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed by God. By virtue of the Sabbath laws and the law stated in Deuteronomy, the body of Jesus cannot remain on that cross for more than just another three hours. It must be down by six. Often, Roman executors simply tossed the bodies of criminals into the nearby valley of Gehenna. There the scavenger birds and animals would consume the rotting flesh. Easton's Bible Dictionary explains, Here the dead bodies of animals and of criminals and all kinds of filth were cast and consumed by fire kept always burning. At this point, in the minds of those people there, will that be the destiny of the corpse of the creator of the universe? Isn't that hard to put together? Is that going to happen to the one who out of nothing created everything? The Son of God. If nothing changes from this point of verse 42, it will be. But verse 43 goes on. Joseph of Arimathea. He's a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. Coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. The request for the body of Christ. The request for the body of Christ. In Matthew chapter 27, it adds, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. Luke 23, 50. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. Verse 51. He had not consented to their 
the Sanhedrin's plan and action. In John 19 verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. So who is this Jesus from these accumulations of verses? Well, the only data we have on Joseph of Arimathea is contained in this short event that we read in all the Gospels. But this tells us quite a bit. It says he is from Arimathea. If it's the right city, it's about 15 to 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It would also have been the birthplace of the prophet Samuel. So he's from outside of the city. He is prominent. That means he's respected. He is significant. And he's not only a prominent, significant man, but he's prominent on the Sanhedrin. That would mean he was like a current day Supreme Court justice. And one with a lot of clout. One with experience. One that they would have listened to. Joseph is likely one of the elders we read about earlier who are on the Sanhedrin. Who were the wealthy, influential lay members of the council. But then we read a really exciting thing about this man. It says he is waiting for the kingdom. Waiting for the kingdom of God. What does that mean? He's waiting for the kingdom of God. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 2 with me. We're going to read here of a couple of other people that were ready and waiting for the kingdom of God. Luke 2.25 And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That is the consummation. That is what he was waiting for, the kingdom of God. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That's what he saw in Jesus. Which you have prepared before the face of all people. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And then look a little further into verse 36. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayer night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So she too, when she saw this child, realized that this was the Redeemer. These are people that were waiting for the kingdom of God. And they had found it in this Christ, in the Messiah. That, I believe, is what we're talking about with this man, Joseph of Arimathea. He realizes that the kingdom of God has come in the presence of Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say he is a rich man. Fifthly, it says he had become a disciple of Jesus. But until recently, in fact until this Friday, he had existed as a secret one. Why? 
because he feared man. He feared the Jews. So, he was a rich man. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was a secret one, and he had a fear of man. We also read he was a good and righteous man. And finally, we see that he had not agreed with the condemnation and execution sentence the Sanhedrin had leveled against Jesus. In Luke chapter 23, it says, Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. So, and in some manner, Joseph had resisted the peers of his group. We read in Mark 14, there was a point where they all, it says, yelled away with him, crucify him. But in some manner, in some way, Joseph had stood back. Perhaps he wasn't there at that time. Perhaps his voice was drowned out. But it is clear, it says, that he did not consent with what they were doing. So what do we see Joseph doing here in this three-hour period of time? Well, first of all, it says he was coming. And then it says he was taking courage. And then he went into Pilate and asked for the body, coming. His conviction for Christ has grown strong enough that he is not simply a secret disciple anymore. He is visibly and physically taking action. Now listen to this. Are you secret disciples? Does anyone at your work know much about you besides the fact that maybe you go to church and you don't swear or tell dirty jokes? Do they know that you are a disciple of Christ? That He is your heartbeat and without Him you have nothing. Are you a secret disciple? I don't know. But this man was. But praise God for this moment that drove him out of the darkness. He comes out. He is coming. Visibly and physically taking action. It says he took courage. It's the Greek word that means to dare or to be bold. I I, I almost get the feeling he came out of that cave and saw light and he was done with it. I'm for Jesus. I'm all in. My past is gone. Secrecy is not in my vocabulary any longer. And then it says he went into Pilate. Now that in itself instantly makes him ceremonially unclean. And he asked for the body of Jesus. Now we're going to look at that a little bit. Let's go back to taking courage. What is courage? Courage faces risk head on and does what is right. Courage faces risk head on and does what is right. It doesn't avoid risk. It walks through it. What risk did Joseph face? Well, very possibly, in the eyes of Pilate, the Roman governor, he would have been seen as a co-conspirator with Christ. Why is this guy wanting this body? What is his association with him? That's one risk. Secondly, undoubtedly, he would have been seen by the Jews as sympathetic towards Jesus, the man they had just crucified. So he would have seen by the Jews as a sympathizer with Jesus. Inevitably, by doing what he did that evening, he gave up his Passover celebration. And unavoidably, as I mentioned earlier, he was defiled for the Sabbath that was coming for at least two reasons. One is because he was handling a dead body. And secondly, because he had entered the hall of a pagan Roman governor 
and had defiled himself. But you know, there is no hesitation in this man Joseph. Scripture also shows us that Joseph did not act entirely alone. And praise God for that. Nicodemus, John 19 says, Nicodemus, who had first come to him, to Jesus, by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. This Nicodemus, what did Jesus call him? The teacher of Israel. Turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 1 through 15. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus answered and said to him, Well, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly I say to you, We speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's our introduction to this man, Nicodemus, who is with Joseph as they care for the body of Christ. We're introduced to him way back in the beginnings of Jesus' ministry. And he comes by night. He he himself is in secret. And that's his introduction. Turn with me now to John 7. And we'll see a little bit more about this fellow. John 7 verse 40. Therefore many from the crowd when they heard this saying said, Truly this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. So we see Nicodemus. He has what seems to be a searching heart. 
searching faith. He's seen something in this Christ. And he's even willing to stand up and resist the peer pressure of the Sanhedrin, of the Pharisees. But he's not there yet. And he understands a few things, but he's coming along. And I love to see how this final position with the body of Christ in their arms, we have these two men. They are like you and me. They were secret. They were afraid. They were weak. But they're not today on Friday. Interestingly, God connects two men from this, for this ministry mission. Remember how we spoke about that a few days ago, or a few weeks ago, where Jesus would invariably send his men and his followers out in twos for his missionary journeys to go get the donkey, for another missionary journey with the 70. He sent them out in pairs. And I find this fascinating that God didn't send Joseph on this mission by himself. He sent another guy, Nicodemus. I don't know. But I wonder, did those, did the, was Joseph surprised to see Nicodemus? Or when, when Nicodemus got there, was he kind of, wow. I don't know. It'll be exciting to see some of those little details if God lets us in. and Maybe they won't even be important at that time. But God brought two men together to serve in this important mission. Now we get to verse 44. It says, A pilot marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Here we have Pilate relinquishing possession of the body of Christ. This body, at this moment in time, belongs to the Roman government. You see that? The body of Christ, empty of its soul, belongs to the Roman government. Pilate decides what's going to be done with it. The word for Jesus' body in verse 43 is soma. And it simply means body. There's no indication of its condition or anything. But here in verse 45, it's a different word. It's soma. And it means a ruin. It means a lifeless body, a carcass, a corpse. That's the body. That body was granted to Joseph. The limp, lifeless body of Jesus hanging by nails through his wrists and feet legally belonged to Rome. As mentioned earlier, the bodies of crucified criminals were often simply, and, and pardon me, but, but picture it, they're simply pulled off the cross. There's no delicacy taken there. These are criminals. They rip them off the cross and they throw them into the valley, into the heap of garbage. But in practice, actually, historically we read that it was not uncommon for Roman authorities to grant the body of the deceased to family members who would plead for them. If there was a family connection and somebody would come, there's several instances where different governors would grant the body to the family. But if there was nobody to claim it and nobody coming forward, they just tossed it. The usual life duration before actual death on the cross could be two or three days. The fact that Jesus was dead in six hours amazed the hardened Pilate. And I think this is an obvious exception to what he usually saw. He couldn't believe it. Six hours? What has happened? But what this implies is evidence of Christ's power over life and death. And one might say, well, why do you say that? John 10, verse 17, Jesus said, Therefore, my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, 
that I may take it again. Do you see what he was saying clear back there in the middle of John? My father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus was in full control of that very moment. When he cried out on that cross, it is finished. It was because it was finished. Christ's mission to overthrow sin and death and Satan was completed. There was no need for him to remain any longer on that cross and suffer in payment under the wrath of God or in the hands of men. His work was done, so he gave up his life intentionally. He intentionally, it says, breathed his last. Jesus is indisputably dead. In these few verses, confirmation of the actual death of Christ is made by the centurion, by Pilate, by Joseph, and by Nicodemus. Verse 46. Then he, Joseph, bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. The respectful care for the body of Christ. The great honor the respect given to the body of Christ. Matthew says that he laid it in his own new tomb, Joseph's, which he had hewn out of rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb, and then he went away. Luke says he laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. John 19 says they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And then finally in John 19 Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Let's put the pieces together from each of those verses. Joseph, with the help of Nicodemus, now has less than three hours left to complete the burial of Christ. As a wealthy man, he may have used servants to assist him. But still he must find a way to do this. He must buy fine linen. He must take Jesus' dead body down from the cross. He must wrap the corpse in the new linen. He must transport the wrapped dead body to a tomb. Now a tomb. DJ, would you pull that up? It was hewn or carved out of rock. It was sealed off with a large round stone that was rolled to close and open. Now they've had about a thousand, roughly, I think 900 some, excavations of tombs in the area of Judah there. Out of those thousand, there are hardly any that had a rolled round uh, door, a round stone to roll across it. It was usually just a square or, or a boulder that they would set in place. So what this tells us is that only those who could afford it had these kind of tombs. What was Joseph of Arimathea? A rich man. A prominent man. This would have been the kind of tomb. It had a large stone that would be rolled across. This tomb was owned, we read, by Joseph of Arimathea. It is new. It is so new that no other body was ever placed in it. And it is located in a garden in the same place where the crucifixion crucifixion just took place in Golgotha, which is nearby 
But no crucifixions took place in the city, so it's just outside the city. See all the details we can understand about this. Now, would you go to the next slide? And it might have looked like this. It's not that large. The Jewish Mishnah, which is Jewish oral tradition, specify the burial chamber to be six by nine feet. It had three sides of benches or shelves on which the corpses were laid. In the middle, there's a pit so that those working with the corpses could stand while they prepared the body with linen and spices. The deceased body would be laid down on the shelf, packed with spices to mitigate the smell. Approximately a year later, the tomb would be re-entered and the bones then would be placed in a box for bones, an ossuary. And it would be put in another area of that tomb, in another shelf, or in another burial tomb. Entrance to the tomb was very low. It required a person to stoop to enter or look inside. Jesus' body was likely placed on the shelf opposite the opening where the empty linen would have laid after he had risen from the dead. And they looked in and that's all they saw. He also must get in the preparation of the body. Joseph and Nicodemus must pack this body with linen and spices and it was a way, they had special ceremonial ways of doing this and they packed these spices in thick and full and wrapped it around so the body, the stench of the body wouldn't be overwhelming. And then finally they rolled the large stone across the entrance of the rock tomb. In this we find the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked. The intention, the plan, was that he would be put to death with the wicked as he was killed. But with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. You see how that worked? The amazing fulfillment of prophecy. He was assigned to be crucified and done away with completely with the wicked, the criminals. But by God's providence, working the hearts of men like Joseph and Nicodemus, the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 9, is graphically shown to us. God is in full control at every moment. And then verse 47, our last verse this morning. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. The women must remember Remembering the location of the body of Christ. Matthew says that Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. So they're very nearby. Luke 23 says, Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. See, this is a very unusual tribute. It's a tribute to the faithfulness of these women. The Lord listed by individual name in Scripture Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph in verse 40, again in verse 47, and then in chapter 16, verse 1. It's really quite amazing. These women are mentioned three times in just a brief period of time because of their faithfulness. They were there. They would not be dissuaded. They would not be fraught with fear, running as the disciples had. Why did these women watch for the burial? We will read, as Phil preaches next week, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. 
Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So they wanted to know where to go when they came back on that Sunday after the Sabbath. The women watched with purpose because they would return immediately after the Sabbath to complete the burial spices for Jesus' body. These women had watched, can you imagine this, in grief and despair as their Messiah, the Savior. Remember Mary Magdalene? God had freed her from seven demons. Jesus had healed her, had delivered her from seven demons. He was already her Savior. And they had watched as this Messiah was beaten and mercilessly crucified. Neither intense sorrow, pain, or fear could cause them to walk away from Jesus. They would not leave His presence until the large heavy stone was rolled between them and their Christ. None of the situations we read of this morning were moments of celebration. Not one of them. None of the people we witnessed expressed great joy. Their religious leaders despised them and have just succeeded in exterminating their spiritual leader. The government officials have mercilessly and crudely executed their Savior and King. But look at them. This is, I'm not even sure how to put this in words, but look at these men and women. They amazingly press on. Why? Because they love he whom they have just buried. They love him and they will serve him even when their light has been extinguished and the thick fog has set in. They don't know what we know. It's over for them. But they will not let go of this Savior. There is a faith there that that is, is strangely powerful. There will be and have been times when your greatest hopes and your dreams all crash into a thousand pieces. I look across the view and I know of several stories. It's hard. Perhaps a wife is now gone. A pink slip at work tells you your job is over. A husband is paralyzed in an accident. A child is taken in a shooting. The test comes back as malignant cancer. A son or daughter falls into deep sin. A dear one is exposed as unfaithful for many years. Those dark times come and you don't understand. It's it's like a fog can set in. And I, I can only imagine for these people, Christ has not risen yet. And yet they press on. It is amazing. Joseph, Nicodemus, Mary, Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, suddenly lost their very hope for living. Yet they pressed on trusting even when there was no reason at all to hope. In fact, their actions made little sense in the circumstances they faced. We read, in hope against hope, Abraham believed so that he became the father of many nations. We read in Habakkuk chapter 3, Though the fig tree may not blossom, no fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. You get the picture? Everything's wiped out. There are no jobs. There's no food. There's no future. And this is what God has shown Habakkuk that will happen. And yet he writes, 
Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He will make my feet like deer's feet, and He will make me walk on high hills. Isaiah 41 says, The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. John 14, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The Lord, in Psalm 9, The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in time of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. When, when it's darkest and, and there is no hope and resource of your own, never forget the faithfulness of God. He is steadfast. This, is a, this really to me is a bizarre example of a faith that seems unreasonable. For there is no resurrection yet. But they were so deeply in love with Jesus and they trusted him so much that they would give all that they had. They would lose everything to show him honor and respect. Brothers and sisters, we don't have it like that. We may come to that end where everything is dark and bleak and we have no resource, we have no hope. But we do have the hope because Christ was raised from the dead. He conquered death. He conquered the enemy. And Phil will share that with us next week. But look at these men and women and what they've done. Get out of secrecy. Come forward. Take your position. Exalting Christ in this, in this world in which we live, in this culture in which we live. Don't be uh, later on in life regretting. Spring out. Come out and be the disciples of Christ that make Him known at every opportunity. And when it's blank, black, when it's dark, when it's foggy. Hang, hang on to him. Hebrews is full of the word where it says, and hold fast the confession. Hold fast the confidence. Sometimes we do that even when there's no reason around us to think it's reasonable. But Jesus is the victor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the example of these men and women that you set before us in this strange little portion of scripture where so much faith is demonstrated and, and yet it, they've lost, lost you. Lord, I pray that we would, we would become more and more the people of God that like, like Joseph, we come forward, we take our places, and we stand for Christ. Some of us have been secret. Lord, forgive us be glorified through us even though we may not know what to say when to say it how to say it drive us for your word says the love of Christ compels us so please use us Father use this body for your glory and honor Lord press upon us that just like Joseph and Nicodemus only had three hours press upon us that we have so little time and people will perish into eternity and our opportunity to glorify you will be over Move and work in us to your glory for your kingdom's sake. In your name we pray, amen.